Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hong Kong was supposed to be part of China's one-country-two-system policy, where mainland China had its authoritarian political system, and Hong Kong, this super techno-forward, democratic city that used to be part of the British Empire, uh, would have its own, well, democratic system. Well, a recent law from China has challenged the very fundamentals of the system, a security law that basically, more or less, puts Hong Kong dissidents under Chinese national control and potentially marking the end of Hong Kong as a free society. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are talking about what has been happening since the law's passage and what this means for countries who want to deal with China internationally as it becomes increasingly repressive in Hong Kong and elsewhere. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams. Alex Ward is on vacation. Hi, Jen. Hi, Zach. A lot going on right now, to, to put it mildly. Um, but the, this Hong Kong situation, it's, it's really striking to me how little attention it's been getting in the international press. It's been covered to be sure, but, uh, you know, I, I can't remember when this was sent, but Bethany Allen Abrahamian, uh, a writer at Axios who covers China, who is, you know, I think one of the, the best China beat writers working right now, wrote a tweet, something like, everybody needs to stop everything and pay attention to Hong Kong. It's not a literal quote, but that was the sense of what she was saying. And it indicated the degree to which China watchers and people who are really closely in tune with the situation are concerned about what's happening, while the rest of the world is, you know, for understandable reasons, caught up with things like the coronavirus and the economic meltdown. Um, but so, Jen, I guess now that we've, we've sort of talked about how big a deal this was, let's actually uh, show rather than tell. And, and explain what the new Chinese law actually does with respect to Hong Kong. Sure. And just quickly on your point about, you know, that uh, the rest of the world is distracted right now and not paying perhaps as much attention to Hong Kong and what's happening as they should be. It's part of the reason why China did it right now. Yeah. Uh, it's, that, that's part of the design is essentially the hope that the world is so distracted with, you know, economic recession and the coronavirus and everything else that they just won't have the the time and energy and patience and you know fortitude to to challenge China. But we can talk about that more in the second half. But let's just talk about the law itself. I wrote a piece uh, with our brilliant colleague Connor Murray. Wow, um, the the rare Jen Williams byline on the site. Usually I know. She's just behind the scene messing with words, but now she's actually written her own. Uh, it used you, to Jen. happen all the time, yeah. but not anymore. <laughs> Editing takes a lot of work. Uh, so so the law, first of all, it was drafted in secret by top Chinese officials in Beijing. Um, Now, China had tried to push through similar national security laws through Hong Kong's legislature in the past. They always did it through Hong Kong's legislature, meaning the legislature was itself going to vote and pass this in Hong Kong. This time, they just skipped that. And they said, we're not even going to talk to the Hong Kong legislators. We're not even going to ask for your input. We're just going to draft this law ourselves here in Beijing in the mainland. 
and we're going to impose it, and you get to deal with it. Congratulations, here's your new law. Um, Chief Executive Carrie Lam reportedly didn't even know the full details of the law until shortly before it was unveiled to the public. Uh, she was not, you know, heavily involved or involved at all on the input. So that's kind of the context of this law. Um, it was super, you know, just a few people in Beijing knew what was going on, and then they unveiled it to the public, and it went into effect immediately. So here's what the law says. It basically criminalizes four broad categories of activities, secession, subversion, organization and perpetration of terrorist activities, and collusion with a foreign country or with external elements to endanger national security. And those who commit any of those acts, and these acts are super vaguely defined um, and are, uh, allow for a really broad interpretation by authorities. But those who, who are found to have violated these acts could face severe punishment up to and including life in prison. So a few things here, in addition to the penalties being really stiff, th there are some, some remarkable features of this law. One is its reach. So not only does this apply to Hong Kongers, it could potentially also apply to foreigners who speak out for Hong Kong or who oppose Chinese interventions there, regardless of where in the world they do so, should they ever want to set foot in Hong Kong or mainland China, they could potentially be arrested under this national security law. That is massive. It is literally, uh, one expert uh, put it, it's China asserting extraterritorial jurisdiction over every person on the planet, which that's a bit much. Um, so, so there's that. But that's obviously not enforceable, right? Like we are not going to get arrested or in trouble with China because we are recording this podcast about how repressing Hong Kong is bad. Maybe. I mean, not while we're sitting, not while we're sitting here. But the thing is, you know, I've been to China before on, on a press junket. Uh, I've met with Chinese foreign officials, um, Chinese foreign ministry officials. If I want to do that again, if I want to go back to China and I've written heavily, you know, on Hong Kong's national security law and how bad it is, I don't know. That's the question. Like, I genuinely don't know if I could go back to China now and you know, or or to Hong Kong and, and be at risk of arrest. But it, it's more directly a problem for people in Hong Kong. It is, this law is explicitly targeting the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. This, this movement that has, you know, long existed in Hong Kong, but that really erupted last summer, right? You remember, we've talked about it before, you know, these big protests, um, Hong Kong tried to introduce this like extradition treaty that would basically allow for people in Hong Kong to be potentially extradited to mainland China and tried there. That massively erupted uh, this huge pro-democracy movement. Millions of people came out to the streets to protest for months and months over, you know, the, the past year. Um, and this is essentially directly targeted at ending that once and for all, at shutting those people down. So when we talk about, when the law says secession, um, anything related to talking about Hong Kong independence. So, you know, carrying a flag, the very first arrest that was made under this law, which was just hours after it went into effect, was a young man who had a flag advocating for Hong Kong independence in his backpack. And the Hong Kong police proudly tweeted it out. They're not subtle about it. They laid out the flag on the sidewalk took a picture of it with the guy standing behind it and said, this guy's been arrested under the national security law. So so that's wild to me, right? Like the Hong Kong police, I would think, or I would think as a non-expert in Hong Kong politics, that they would have been responsive to the local authorities, which is to say the voters, 
the voters, right, in a democratic system, or at least a nominally democratic system, even embedded within a broader authoritarian structure, you'd think they wouldn't want to enforce this law in the way that China's wanting them to. But it sounds like from the way you're putting it, they're doing it enthusiastically. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't know what conversations are happening within the police, but the police have been in lockstep with Carrie Lam uh, and and her government, and she is very, very, very close to Beijing, uh, more or less, you know, their handpicked candidate to be the chief executive. Um, you know, there is democracy in Hong Kong. There is a legislature. There are pro-democracy legislators, uh, one of whom was also arrested in the protests that erupted the day after this new national security law went into effect. Um, there's a stunning photo of him being arrested with a T-shirt that just reads courage across the front of it, and he's being arrested by riot oh. police. Um, and so, you know, there's there's this huge fear now that, that not only these activists, but that even lawmakers, um, you know, there are upcoming elections happening in Hong Kong. Well, if there are pro-democracy lawmakers, does their campaign platform fall under this new national security law? Does that mean they can't even, you know, say their their platform? What does that mean for pro-democracy lawmakers being elected, right? And and that's another part of what's going on with this law is that, you know, in the previous election, there were a lot of pro-democracy lawmakers who were voted into office, into the legislature. And China saw that, experts say, and, were, and was like, yeah, nope, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. So, you know, what you really kind of need to understand here in the broader picture, it's it's kind of maybe hard, I, I think, for Americans to, to understand, but I think it's actually really easy if you think about it this way. So in China, this kind of repression and limits uh, and, you know, absolute blanket restrictions on free speech have been there for a long time, right? Chinese citizens, uh, you know, people probably around our age have essentially grown up knowing how you are allowed to act and not act online, uh, how you are allowed to act and not act in the streets, what you're allowed to say and not say in China, right, in mainland China. That is the opposite case in Hong Kong, right? These, you know, young people in particular who came of age, you know, after, you know, or right around the time that uh, in the 90s that Britain handed Hong Kong back over to China with these stipulations that they had to maintain democracy, right? These people grew up with free speech. So it would be like, essentially, in America, where we've had the right to free speech all our lives, right? Most of us with, you know, obvious caveats, but growing up like that and all of a sudden, literally overnight, that is gone. So everything you've said online before, potentially retroactively, you could be punished and imprisoned for. Going out into the streets, having, you know, expressing your views, saying things to your friends. Nobody knows how far this law is going to go. And so it's literally like night and day in Hong Kong. Everything evaporated. Free speech, freedom of the press evaporated overnight. And it is a massive systemic shock that people, people are reeling. People don't know, you know, in Hong Kong if they're going to be able to continue even living there anymore. What's going to happen to the pro-democracy movement? It is, it is a nightmare. It is everything these people have been protesting against for years. It it's it's wild in in a certain sense, right? Because you read about it and you you hear what Hong Kongers are saying, and you hear reports like that person being arrested for the flag uh, display. And to to me, it doesn't it doesn't sound like a, a law, right? In the way we normally think about laws working, like somebody passes it, and then you they're of a government that they're used to. Then you know things change, but generally speaking, 
you know, overall the underlying system and architecture remain the same. It's more like an invasion, right? It's more like mainland China has come into Hong Kong in a way that it wasn't previously, despite having nominal sovereignty over the territory and right. is imposing rules, restrictions, an entirely new political system almost overnight, right? It, it, it you know, things stay the same. They haven't abolished the Hong Kong legislature, but they've defanged it. They've made it exactly. so you can't nominally exercise your democratic rights without risking arrest. And that changes the fu- the very fundamentals, the heart of what it was to be Hong Kong, what it has been to be Hong Kong uh, in the era since transition from British rule. It's hard Absolutely. to overstate the magnitude of it. Right. I mean, it, it's it's China imposing its will directly in a way that it literally never has before, right? And again, they used to go through the legislature to try to push these things through so that it had at least the veneer of democratic accountability. But, I mean, it, it's even worse. Um, the, the law also gives China more power to interfere directly in Hong Kong's legal system. So they're fully undermining rule of law. It empowers China, and, and NPR did a good um, reporting on this, Um, The law empowers China to set up this thing called a national security committee that actually will oversee the investigation and prosecution of people who violate this law. Oh, Um, good. That sounds healthy. Yeah. And that committee, here's the thing. Here's the kicker. It's not subject to judicial review or Hong Kong law. It's absolutely operating with zero local checks and balances in Hong Kong. It is Beijing saying, not only are you subject to this law, but we're going to set up a committee to make sure you're actually carrying out this law. And so if, you know, for instance, someone is arrested by Hong Kong authorities under this law and the Hong Kong judicial system says, "Eh, we don't actually want to prosecute this person. We're going to let you go. This committee can theoretically step in and say, nope, just kidding. And again, even worse, it actually allows for Chinese judges in mainland China to try the most serious or the most complicated of the national security cases. So it's essentially an extradition bill by another name. So if if they don't feel like, you know, this person who is arrested, if this was so egregious, they don't even trust Hong Kong to handle it, they can literally just take that person to mainland China and try them there. No checks and balances. Chinese legal system, it's not like you can, you know, appeal to the Supreme Court and have your lawyers there and have this, you know, the ACLU represent you, right? Like th- there's, there's nothing. You're just going to be in prison. Goodbye. A- right. And that's why this is so terrifying. What might seem confusing uh, is, like, why this is happening now, right? It seems like the Chinese government was really comfortable with uh, Hong Kong's limited self-determination for quite some time. And and my own read is that it's a combination of a few things. The coronavirus that we've already talked about, uh, giving them a lot of international cover. The past few years of pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong have been destabilizing and embarrassing for the Chinese government. And they, uh, they've they tried to impose more subtle control over Hong Kong. Uh, it has not worked. It has led to mass unrest on the streets. And an authoritarian government basically couldn't tolerate it. It's sort of like Lincoln's famous, a house divided cannot stand quote. Well, China was divided, but one half was a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than the other one. And so it was sort of a matter of time before this this cracked up and China felt a need to, to crack down on Hong Kong. And then the third explanation uh, is that Xi Jinping in the past few years has become more overtly authoritarian in a system that was already authoritarian, to be clear, yeah. but more ruthless in pursuing his goals of, of not only consolidation of power, but personal consolidation of power, of making himself functionally ruler for life, 
uh, when China used to have a power handoff and transition system, uh, increasingly repressing China's minorities, uh, which we'll talk about more in the second half, and trying to make all these efforts to bring Hong Kong in line. It just, it really, it strikes me that this is not just about the structural nature of the China-Hong Kong relationship, nor is it just a matter of of opportunity, but uh, an expression of the nature of Xi Jinping's rule and what he wants to do with the Chinese government, the vision that he has for it relative to uh, Chinese leaders in the past. Yeah, Zach, that's exactly right. Chinese leaders in the past have actually not only just been like kind of okay with the the situation with Hong Kong, it's actually been seen as as rather advantageous to have this this pocket of China essentially that can operate as this, you know, open, free society. And not because they super duper love democracy, but because it enabled Hong Kong to become this huge financial center, you know, around the world where, I mean, Hong Kong's, you know, business uh, and financial economy and landscape is is tremendous. And it, it enabled, you know, big businesses and investments and 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 money to be right there and to have you know, enabled China to have access to that kind of capital and that kind of, you know, contact with like the broader financial system in a way that, you know, a lot of companies still for a long time wouldn't be able to operate in China. And so it was financially and economically advantageous to China to leave this as this kind of like little separate section that they were able to kind of feed off of in terms of, you know, like a little piggy bank almost, if you if you think about it that way, um, which, which is why it's confusing to me that like it doesn't seem like ending that, which is clear what's happening, by the way. I mean, businesses are fleeing. Uh, companies are like, we don't know what to even do. We saw this week right after the law was passed that big tech companies like Google and Facebook um, all, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do. They they ended up pausing um, these requests from Hong Kong for user data on people who have used, you know, their their social media platforms and things like that. Um, with these tech companies basically being like, wait, we don't know if you're going to use this to put these people in prison now, so we're going to pause on this. So all these companies are like rethinking what they're going to do. Then there's like the workforce, you know, if all the the young, you know, not only young, but if all the the talented, you know, young people and uh, and business people who have lived and worked and you know staff these these amazing companies and businesses all flee Hong Kong. Well, then you know what happens to those businesses. So it seems like it was this, it was wasn't like a financial decision or economic decision that was driving this. So again, I think you're exactly right. Xi Jinping is just doing this and you know essentially saying screw the consequences. I'm going to do what I want to do because I can. And we're going to talk about you know in the second half, whether he can and what we can do about it. Yeah, in fact, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And we've been teasing you about the second half, but when we come back, we'll do what Jen just said. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the Hong Kong security law, which basically spells the end of Hong Kong as a quasi-independent democratic uh, little enclave inside mainland China. Now, we want to zoom out to to the broader problems raised by Hong Kong, not just for China, but for the world. Because uh, as we've been discussing, Hong Kong is part of a, a pattern of increasing repression on the part of the Chinese government. The most notable of these, to my mind, is the horrific treatment of the Uyghur Muslim minority. We have, again, talked about this on the show before, but it's another one of those things that it, it feels like this— extraordinary crime 
and it is this extraordinary. <laughs> right. Crime. It feels like because it is. <laughs> right. That that's that's just largely skating under the radar of international concern and attention. Right. This is, I believe, by one count, the largest network of concentration camps since the Holocaust. Um, now they're not extermination camps, as far as we're aware, but the the mistreatment of people inside of them uh, is everything that we've heard is is, is absolutely gut wrenching. I mean, recently there was a report about products made of human hair coming out of Xinjiang, uh, which is the province where most of the Uyghurs live, um, and how that was farmed and and what was used to make that is uh, I almost don't want to know. I feel like I need to know professionally, but I don't. Yeah, it, it's it's the nature of the criminality here that is so moral criminality, not legal criminality, because in China all of this is legal. Right. Just to be clear country. on that story, since we did, you know, make a comparison to the Holocaust, I want to be clear. It, it as far as we know, this, this isn't like they are killing people and, and harvesting their hair. Um, it is. It seems to be that they are forcibly cutting the hair of of Uyghur Muslim women uh, when they come to these camps, which the Chinese government calls re-education camps, where they are basically. Um, forced to, it's forced indoctrination into, you know, the Chinese Communist Party ideology. But um, these women who traditionally wear their hair long are having uh, their hair forcibly cut. And then they're, the, the Chinese government is then apparently selling this um, abroad for, for hair products like weaves and, and extensions, um, which, it, which is horrifying yeah. by any stretch uh-huh. of the imagination. I just want to be clear that it's not, when we say harvesting, I just want to be clear what we are and are not talking about. But anyway. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's the nature of the thing that when you say at least it's not murder, right. it's something also horrible. Right. right. When you're at you're, that point, you're already yeah. way over the line. And then the reason that we're getting into this kind of uh, graphic nature of the and, and you know dark historical comparison is because this is the the situation with the Uyghur Muslims uh, and with Hong Kong represents uh, a China that is. Uh, different from what we thought China might be as it developed economically, right? There was obviously this hope that China would politically liberalize. Barring that, there was a hope that China would at least be the kind of country that could be successfully integrated into the norms of the international system. Obviously, you weren't like, even if it wasn't democratic, there would still be terrible repression. But the hope was maybe China would curtail this in order to try to maximize its ability to integrate into the global economy and to avoid friction with the West. What Jen was saying in the last half about Hong Kong as a business center, that kind of incentive right. for good Chinese behavior, good human rights respecting Chinese behavior. Uh, but, but that's not what's happened, right? We're in a world where under Xi Jinping, China has gone in, in very much the opposite direction. It has gotten more militaristic in terms of the way that it provokes its neighbors and uh, builds up its its military power clearly as a counterweight to the United States in Eastern Asia. It has domestically become more brutal, more repressive, more censorious on the internet, now crushing Hong Kong and uh, engaging in a campaign of, of a, it's not ethnic cleansing in the sense of murder, but but it's ethnic cleansing in the sense of trying to stamp out the cultural distinctiveness of an ethnic minority. Right. These are the kinds of things that are not supposed to be tolerated. They're supposed to be red lines in the way that the international community treats a country. The problem is, given China's power at this point, it's not obvious to me how you're supposed to deal with a country crossing what are supposed to be, you know, the post-1945 bright lines. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest question right now that, that I have. I think it's it's the question that people in Hong Kong have. You know, what is what is the world going to do to punish the Chinese government or try to stop this? Um, in, in the Hong Kong context in particular, um, you know, the UK, Britain has has a very clear historical reason 
to, you know, they have an actual treaty with China saying that China, you know, promising, China promising that they will respect these norms um, for years to come, these democratic norms that, that were in Hong Kong. So Britain in particular, you know, Hong Kongers are looking to, to the UK going, what are you going to do? You were the ones who signed this treaty. You're supposed to be, you know, the ones who were working with us to guarantee these norms. And, you know, so far they haven't done much. You know, they basically seem to be loosening some of the visa restrictions to allow Hong Kongers, you know, more Hong Kongers to come uh, to live in the UK. But that doesn't do much to help people who want to stay in Hong Kong, right? That doesn't do anything to stop the Chinese government or induce it to, you know, maybe not so heavily handed, um, you know, implement this law. And then, you know, on the U.S. side, you know, looking at the Uyghurs in Hong Kong, we have the U.S. government has, you know, put sanctions on specific Chinese officials, you know, in connection with with the, the Uyghur concentration camps. Um, sanctioned Chinese officials for various other things. There's um, legislation going through Congress right now that uh, would basically force the president, the U.S. government, to sanction anyone who is engaged um, in suppressing democracy in Hong Kong. Um, whether that will go forward and be signed into law is a big question now. But, you know, Zach, like you said, the engagement from the United States in particular with China, but also with the, you know, the rest of the world's engagement. The idea was by engaging and by working with them, we'll be able to have a good relationship, but also to push them on human rights. Right. And hopefully over the long term, they will, they will moderate, they will, you know, come in line with international norms of behavior. But we're not seeing that. But also from the Trump administration, because of the trade war and because of of Donald Trump's, you know, personal and political interests. Um, and and economic interests and wanting to have a good trade relationship with China, he has been a lot less vocal on the human rights issues than past presidents have. And that is is really scary to me that, you know, the other ostensible great world power that has the ability to actually impose very serious consequences on China uh, it doesn't seem to really be all that concerned, at least in the executive level, with doing so. If John Bolton's book is to be believed, then Trump actually approves of China putting weakers in concentration camps. Right. Uh, we, we don't know if that's true. It, it certainly seems plausible and consistent because Trump had publicly said that he uh, liked the way that China repressed the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. So it's not, wouldn't be out of character. But there's a generalized vacuum of American leadership right now, to be sure. Right. And certainly on human rights issues, because the president doesn't care and because crafting a policy to deal with these things is really difficult. Right. You mentioned Trump's trade war. Right? One of our colleagues asked in Slack, like, maybe I'm naive, but why? we were talking about the Uyghur situation and Slack is our internal messaging system. And he, and he asked, you know, why can't we just cut off trade with China? Like, this seems so awful. Why, why, why do we have to be engaged economically with these people? And the answer is that cutting off U.S. trade with China, given the integration of, of the U.S. supply chain, would cause a global depression at a point where we're already potentially in a global depression, right? right. The, it, 
and you can see from the uh, the Trump trade war, right, that even more limited efforts to curtail trade, it's sort of the blunt instruments that the Trump administration employed, tariffs and so on, lead to Chinese retaliation that end up hurting both sides, right? And you don't, sure, no one's happy with the situation, but the U.S. is hurting just as much, so China doesn't have an incentive to cave on human rights-based behavior. Um, if, if you know, the, the pain on the economic side is equally distributed between the two antagonists, what they would want is just, you know, relaxation of the economic pain and some kind of agreement on those fronts, right? It's, it's very difficult to leverage, and we've learned this in the sanctions literature too, to leverage economic pain into getting the government to make concessions, to coercing states to behave differently on major national priorities. Right. Because typically speaking— they care more about whatever it is, the, the policy that they're pursuing, than the costs that they get that are imposed by sanctions. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen that with North Korea and the nuclear program. We've seen that with, you know, Iran and its behaviors. Um, and that's absolutely right. Um, and, and I think it actually goes deeper than just governments, right? So we, we've talked about what governments, you know, can and, and can't do. And, you know, I would absolutely love for the U.S. government and for world governments to rally together and and do something, right? Whatever it is, but do something, say something, you know, impose more sanctions. If that's the least you can do, at least do that, right? Something has to, something's got to give. But below the government level, there's also the business level, right? Which is, you know, what can can U.S. businesses, can can Western, you know, European companies, can they respond on their own, regardless of what their governments do? Can they threaten to pull out of, of mainland China or pull out of Hong Kong in an attempt to, you know, coerce the Chinese government to back off um, or, you know, amend their behavior? Um, and again, you know, I think the question is really complicated, right? So, you know, for instance, you know, we we're talking about tech companies, right? So if, you know, Google or Facebook wants to try to say, look, look, we will completely shut down all operations. We will pull out of, of Hong Kong, um, you know, and essentially as a way to to punish China for this, or or even not even a punishment, but to say, we won't be party to this. We won't, you know, we don't want to let, you know, our platforms be used uh, as a means of repression. My big concern, and I was talking to some of the people at, at Recode, which is part of Vox that, that does a lot of our, our tech and um, social media kind of tech coverage. And I was saying, you know, what would stop China from just going, okay, bye, see you later? You know, they have, China has its own, it has Baidu, it has, you know, WeChat platform, which is kind of a, you know, version of, of Twitter. Um, Baidu is like their big search engine that's, you know, essentially a, a, com- a competitor for Google. Um, you know, what's to stop China from going, okay, bye, we don't need you anyway, and just there being no consequences. Um, and, you know, China continuing to develop you know, their own domestic kind of capabilities and then export them them around the world to continue to compete with the U.S. It, you know, and then for other companies to want to pull out of China, there's obviously a very clear financial incentive. China is a huge market. And so for companies, you know, to put human rights and democracy and free speech values over their bottom line, like I personally would love for that to happen. But the history of uh, the world suggests that it's probably going to be if it comes down to human rights versus making your shareholders happy and cutting bonus checks, and uh, they're probably going to pick uh, the latter. And so, you know, while we can hope and we can put pressure as you know citizens of the world, put pressure on companies um, through you know voting with your pocketbook, right, by refusing to to 
use these platforms. Some of these platforms and companies are so ubiquitous that like, how do you stop using Amazon or Google or, you know, whatever. Um, and and so it's really difficult. Um, and, and Hong Kongers and Uyghurs, you know, Hong Kongers at least still have somewhat more of a, of an ability to voice their dissent, at least for now, for, you know, for a few more days, who knows? But I mean, Uyghurs are literally being rounded up and put in camps. They don't have any real way of, of speaking out um, and of, of asking the international community. And so, you know, I, I, I truly think from a moral, you know, an ethical perspective, it's, it's incumbent on, on all of us who do have a platform to say like, do what you can to help, right? Like this is not okay. Bottom line, this is not okay. What China is doing in Hong Kong, what China is doing to the Uyghurs and what China is doing in a whole lot of other areas is fundamentally immoral and deeply, deeply wrong. And something's got to stop. Jen, I think what those examples illustrate uh, is that there's a there's a broader strategy that's been developed by across the advanced democratic world towards China, right? And it's failed, right? It's not just that the United States government thought, okay, maybe if we liberalize China economically, China will liberalize politically, uh, or at least be containable. It's that this idea that we can think about China as a market primarily, right? As a country with, with which we can do business first, this orientation towards the nation, which I think has dominated the way that non-military people have thought about China for a very long time. Military people are always concerned about the nature of, it, of its threat in that region. But on the whole, the political and social orientation towards China is we need to compete with these increasingly prominent homegrown Chinese companies and for Chinese consumers. Just generally speaking, the orientation, the idea, the the, the theory has been that China is primarily a market that you can deal with. And and that might not be the case anymore. And if that approach is starting to fail, that is to say it has forced us to enable and accept behaviors that no one should be able to accept and countenance, then it is time to develop a new strategic orientation towards China. Do I know what that is? No, I am not. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm one guy sitting in my home makeshift podcast. That is above studio. our pay grade. However, yeah. <laughs> however, <laughs> there, there are smart people who are working on this question. Right, and it's it's also right, and it's it's one that I think uh, there, there's there's fertile ground to think about this, and there's political interest in doing this. Right, I'm I'm often at least in the United States very critical of these sort of. Uh, self-styled right-wing populist leaders, people like Josh Hawley uh, in the Senate. But uh, Hawley, at least, has has put a lot of effort into trying to figure out ways to rethink the U.S. approach to China. And I think that it would be good, without engaging in new Cold War-type hyper-generalizations, people start thinking about China less as uh, an economic rival or even a military competitor, but as a human rights abuser, a state that is fundamentally hostile to the norms that are accepted in the international community and starts thinking about the fact that this this defines the Chinese government's orientation towards foreign markets and towards uh, the regional security balance in its area and maybe think about countering this perspective of the Chinese governments and what tools can be leveraged to prevent it from getting away with this kind of stuff in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. Yeah, absolutely. One, like, last thing I just want to kind of of add that that I – I feel like is important when talking about, you know, how do we quote unquote punish China or, you know, how do we do this? Um, and when talking about specifically like pulling out businesses, cutting off trade and sanctions and things like that, 
Um, there's the obvious fact that there's the perhaps not so obvious to many people fact that like Chinese economic growth has also been a driver of lifting millions of Chinese yeah. people out of poverty. Yeah. So this isn't, you know, cost neutral. Imposing, you know, economic penalties on the Chinese government won't probably actually end up hurting the elites in China and the Chinese government and the Communist Party themselves. Now, individual sanctions on individual leaders may actually do so, but more generally, economic penalties and things like that could also end up very, you know, much hurting the people who are actually living under Chinese repression, right? And yeah. so so those are the kind of things that you have to take into account. None of this is easy. None of it is clear and black and white and straightforward because anything you do in, in foreign policy, just as in life, has consequences. And some of those consequences, you know, are going to be unforeseen. And so you have to be really careful when thinking about how do we craft policy that we don't also end up really hurting vulnerable people and, you know, people in China. And also, you know, being careful that, that rhetoric, you know, about coronavirus and about human rights violations doesn't become anti-Chinese, right? Uh, on but, an ethnic level, yes, not a exactly. Level. On a national, yeah. like challenging and pushing against the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping is absolutely, you know, in my view, necessary. But anything that governments and businesses and individuals do, you know, has to take into account, you know, and, and be sure that that doesn't end up having you know, even worse impacts or turn into some kind of, you know, racist, uh, you know, or Cold War kind of anti-Chinese sentiment where, you know, Chinese people or Chinese Americans, you know, in general get swept up in this, you know, and so it's really important when we talk about this and, and when we think about potentially crafting policies to address this, that we take all of this into account and, and not just do knee-jerk reactions um, that can end up doing more harm than good. We're going to leave you there. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for all his hard work and making this episode happen. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if for nothing else other than Jen's eloquent summation of why none of this is easy and everything is difficult. Take care. <laughs> Worldly, See you everything's hard. <laughs> See you next week. Bye.